HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. You, of course, are listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we are taking a trip uh, up north to Maine, the fine state of Maine. And we are talking lobster. We are joined on the line by Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster. Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. And Eric Knight, a lobster fisherman who has worked with Luke's in the past. Eric, it's great to have you on. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, guys, I am excited to tuck in. I haven't done a lobster show in probably about two years. And um, so I wanted to kind of kick off by talking a little bit about the main lobster scene. Um, You guys are obviously big players in the lobster space. Um, Lots of different kind of facts and figures out there um, on the Internet. So, Luke, I'm hoping you can kind of uh, set the record straight. Um, What I've been reading is that the Maine lobster industry contributes around a billion dollars to the Maine economy. So that's obviously uh, job creation, lobster sales, everything kind of related to the lobster industry. And I've been hearing that 2016, 2015 have been kind of big years. Is that right? Yeah, we've had big years for the last five to ten years. Um, and I think that that billion-dollar number is, is something that we're going to start surpassing here pretty quickly. We've had the price of landings um, go up, and we've had landings as a, from a volume of pounds stabilized over the last couple of years. So um, there's, there's a lot of 
it's a very interconnected market. So for every additional pound of lobster that, that we land, there's there's bait and fuel and dockage and services that need to go into making sure a, a fisherman can can effectively and safely do the work that they do. And then there's processors and trucking com- trucking companies and processors that are that are buying that product from fishermen and turning into value added products and using main labor and then. The next level is selling those products to to main businesses that are also using main labor, main labor, and using um, the main brand to help sell those products. So there is definitely a uh, there's a multiplier effect where just because one lobster might sell for five dollars a pound doesn't uh, doesn't mean that that's the, the last time that lobster contributes value to the entire um, to the entire system. That's awesome. And, and Luke is definitely a man who knows his lobster is a, a native um, Mainer, third generation um, lobsterman. And the your business, Luke's Lobster, um, is nationwide. Uh, you know, we can we can hit you up and get one of your delicious lobster rolls in Maine, um, Chicago, Las Vegas. Um, so you've been kind of deeply engaged in the lobster and lobstering community your whole life. You said um, you work with the Maine Lobster Institute, the Maine Lobsterman Community Alliance, the Maine Lobster Marketing uh, co- Collaborators. Um, so lots of Maine, lots of, lots of lobster in your life. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. My, my father was a, a fisherman that uh, then became a lobster dealer that then became a lobster processor. So I grew up um, on boats and on the wharf and um, had a had a couple of years as a, as a sternman um, when I was younger, learning the trade. And then I had a student license where I built a boat in high school and went out and hauled um, 150 traps for a couple of summers. Um, but uh, really, I just had great admiration for the effort that commercial fishermen like Eric are doing each and every day and love the industry, and that's what brought me back to it um, after taking a little break during college and then um, doing a little stint in, invest, in investment banking post-graduation. Yeah, so, yeah, just to be clear, guys, Luke is not the man who's out there fishing all the lobsters for Luke's lobsters. That would that would be crazy. Um, but, <laughs> Eric, um, I know, honestly, kind of, like, less about your background, so I would love for you to um, kind of catch me and our listeners up. Um, you are a, a lobsterman. What what does that kind of mean? What What's your history? Um, what's your kind of, like, approach to and connection with Maine and lobster fishing? Well, I uh, I grew up in Cape Elizabeth with Luke, and at a young age, I I got my student license as well, and I was allowed to fish 150 traps and progressed every year. I wanted to get more and more into the fishery, and that took some time. You know, growth, buying new boats, buying bigger boats, upgrading my traps, and I'm at the point now where. I've, you know, I fish offshore primarily, and, um, you know, the volume that I deal with is much less than the volume that Luke deals with. So I'm playing per trap. Um, Luke is buying from several of us lobstermen, so he has a, a, a better understanding of all of us, you know, where it's more of an individual 
you know, me versus the next guy fishing next to him. And, and Luke's kind of just brought us all together and uh, done a great job. That makes a lot of sense. So both of you guys are using words like license, um, a very specific figure, 150 traps, talking about offshore. I mean, one of the things that's so um, admirable, I think, about Maine lobster fisheries is the incredible work that the uh, community has done to both kind of strengthen and preserve and enhance um, our our access and our ability to kind of enjoy lobsters long term. I know we were talking some big numbers at the top of the show around the impact to, to Maine's economy, and um, we touched a little bit on the volume of lobster, but that hasn't always been the case. I mean, definitely there was a point for several decades where the the future of lobster was cer- certainly like uncertain. And I'm wondering if, Luke, maybe you can give us just kind of a quick overview of um, how that kind of ship turned around. Sure. Um, I mean, first, I think Eric's being a little bit modest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Eric's got one of the bigger boats in the harbor and is one of the highliners in in Portland. And what that that means is not not only does he provide for his family and and do quite well, but he's the guy that's gone out um, 12 months a year. You know, it's fun to it's fun to go out and haul traps in July and in August. Um, but I would imagine um, Eric has some stories about hauling in December, January, February. Um, and the quality of lobster is great, um, but so aren't the, so isn't the weather conditions. Um, so he he's being a little modest there. Um, well, we we're to give him a there, but. <laughs> we're gonna we are gonna we are gonna come back yeah. to that because I will say I have you know hauled lobster. Uh, I, I went out with a lobsterman uh, off of Vinyl Haven a couple of years ago in August, and that was a super pleasant experience. But I don't think you have to push your imagination too hard to see how that might be different in the dead of winter. Oh, absolutely. Um, so as far as the community goes, I mean, and this also goes back to the fishermen, so we've had some sustainable practices in place since the turn of the century. I mean, a lot of our rules and regulations have not changed since since the late 1800s. Um, what, what, and, and, and along with that, I mean, you take the coast of Maine and you actually stretch it out with all of the fingers and inlets that we have from southern Maine all the way up to the Canadian Canadian border, our coastline is actually larger than than California, um, and Eric, there's what like five five thousand commercial fishermen. Yes, yep, five so to six. Five thousand commercial fishermen, and, and I bet you there's only a handful of patrol officers. So this the, the point I'm trying to make here is that over the last hundred or so years, this industry has has grown um, leaps and bounds because of the sustainable and sustainable measures that were put in place over 100 years ago, and it hasn't taken a bunch of regulators and um, authority to to ensure that the fishery comes back and, and is strong each and every year because it's predominantly self-policed by by these lobstermen. Um, they're, they're not out doing the, the things that that would potentially cripple the fishery in the, in the future. And, and what I'm talking about there is we've got regulations on, on size lobster. So it takes about seven years for a lobster to become of mature size um, and have a chance to be reproductive. We also have an oversized limit. When they become of a certain size, we, we consider them to be hyperproductive. So we 
we return them back to the to the ocean. There's escape vents on these traps, which allow the baby lobsters to crawl in and crawl out. So it's almost like we're we're farming out there. Right. Um, and and then any female lobster that's ever had eggs um, gets a notch in in one of its flippers, and that that notch stays with it for the life of the lobster. So. Anytime somebody catches a lobster with those eggs or not, it gets returned back to the resource. So we end up finding there that I, mean, I would say those are probably three of the most important sustainability measures that ensure that that fishery is, is healthy and, and, and stable or, so, or growing each and every year. I just want to jump in there. So it, it's kind of, I mean, it sounds a little bit like there's kind of like a Goldilocks of lobster that actually gets to get kind of kept and brought back and kind of enjoyed by us. Um, so it ha- it's like not too big, it's not too small, and it's not egg producing. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, Eric, would you agree too that that's also kind of the the best flavor um, and texture of, of a lobster too is, is also that, that size that we harvest in Maine? Absolutely. Uh, the, the one pound, the pound and a half lobsters, uh, Shadow lobster seems to be the uh, the one everyone wants. The one everyone the, wants. The, the, the meat's sweet. It's succulent. It's it's very tasty. It's not too gamey for you know the larger lobsters um, tend to be a little gamier, but the meat is just perfect. So hey Eric, can you explain for folks um, what the notching like? What does that mean? How does that happen? <clears throat> well. On the lobster, it's like a butterfly. Each side is symmetrical. So we take the right flipper of the center flipper, and we take that and we put a V in it. We have a V uh, marker on our measures, so we can actually press that into the flipper, and it takes a piece of their their shell out of their tail. So every lobsterman knows that, this is a breeder. She wants bared eggs. She's going to do it again. We want to keep our resource sustainable, so we throw her back. Um, and so, so, I mean, kind of like a hole punch for a lobster. Exactly. Okay. It's, it's nothing that's going to hurt the lobster. Over time, they will um, grow, and as they grow, that notch will become smaller and smaller. So in about 7 to 10 years, that lobster might not show that, she ever bared eggs, but by then she's probably going to be oversized, so she'll go back anyway. Just to kind of double protect it. And so I think that's Absolutely. like one of the other interesting things about, um, you know, fish and lobsters. You, as a, a, a fisherman on the boat, like someone is actually touching every single live lobster that comes into the boat and there's like an instantaneous kind of, you know, multivariate evaluation that's happening right away um so can you can, can you talk so eric you you're you know i have i i know from just like kind of watching that this happens incredibly fast um you know when i was at the back of the boat trying to do the job of the you know the the gentleman i was out fishing with i was obviously like totally slow and awkward <laughs> and it was super uncomfortable because i was like you know I, you know, you're just like any new, new, new task. It's like super slow. But when you're there pulling in a trap at the bo- back of the boat, can you just give us a quick rundown of like kind of what happens? So you're looking for, mm-hmm. you know, size, you're, you're notching them, you're looking for eggs. Um, what else is going on? 
Well, when the trap comes aboard the rail, everyone has a job on the boat. Um, me, I'm boarding the traps, and I'm handling the lobsters. The other guy on the boat is rebaiting our trap, and the third guy is now taking that trap to stack on the back of the boat to be reset. So it's, it's quite a process. And the reason it goes so quickly is because I have a great team, and my crew wants to get in. You know, we want to get it done as quick as possible. Usually we're, we're under weather conditions where the weather window might only be two days and so we're really trying to productivity, you know, keep up the pace throughout the day. So that's, you know, as soon as that trap comes up, it's like Christmas. You know, you get what you can out of it. Everything <laughs> you can't keep, you throw back over. I mean, I get excited every time a trap comes aboard. So we, we primarily fish trawls, which are 20 trap trawls. So we're allowed 800 traps. We have 40, 40 trawls. So in two-day span, depending on the weather, we'll get through all those, and then we'll, we'll come in and sell our catch. So well, I think one of the things that's hard, like a little hard for me to wrap my head around is the kind of, like, why, why Maine lobster fishermen have been so much more successful than other fisheries at, at this kind of sustainability Thing at kind of preserving the catch. And I wonder if it's like, because there's no, like essentially someone is touching every single lobster. Th so there's no kind of like, oh, it's just like a big net and we dumped it in a box and then we looked at it later. And by then, you know, the, the fish or the scallops or whatever are, are like dead and you can't do anything with them anyway. Like, is there something about the like way that you fish that is like intimately tied to the ability to be so successful in this way? Well, the, the great thing about our industry is we have uh, fixed trap. Our gear is fixed to the bottom. Um, we have the escape panels, like Luke was telling you earlier. Um, everything is able to go in and out of our trap alive. So that's a, that's a big thing. We're not, we're not raking the bottom and, and getting everything in our way. We are targeting a specific species, and that's lobster. So anything that does come into our trap, we are able to throw right back. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great thing for the sustainability of this industry. You know, it takes an honest person, but when you really look overall in this industry, this is my livelihood. Right. You know, so I don't want to damper with anything. I want to I make sure this resource is plentiful enough for my kids. Yeah, I, no, I I get that, but I feel like that's the case for a lot of things, and in most cases, we we don't make the right choice, even or or the factors in that moment or for that specific generation. The pressure is so great that people can't they don't have the they can't afford that that like option or that foresight. I mean, I do think it's like really important to emphasize like. It, you know, it's a special thing that's happening there. And, and like, I just think it's so, I don't know. It's like, it just really blows my it, mind. So it's I a think lot the, like, the big, go ahead, Eric. Well, I was just going to say, it's a lot like farming. Um, yeah. Now we're, we're harvesting, you know, it's our crop. We have to go out we have to turn the dirt over. We have to, we have to change the bait. We have to keep moving our traps around. 
you know, we have to stay active. It's not, it's not that you can just jump right into this and, and expect to make a million dollars because it's not going to happen. There's a lot of there's a lot of background work that people don't see that we're doing in order to preserve this special product that we have. Yeah. So okay. So kind of switching gears a little bit, Luke. So you know, I uh, I read that in 2015, you know, Luke's Lobster brought in 20 million dollars in revenue and five million pounds of lobster. Is that about right? That's about right, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, millions of pounds of lobster, millions of dollars in revenue, which, you know, let's be clear, folks, that doesn't mean that $20 million is in, like, Luke's bank account. Um, <laughs> although, I right. like, that Sales would be nice. Are two very different <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line. Bottom line. Bottom Looks line. a little different. Got to scroll all the way down. Um, yeah. yeah. But um, one of the things that I think is like super interesting in the way that you've set up your business is, you know, you you started with uh, kind of a, a lobster shack and you're kind of looking back along the supply chain and ways to kind of um, really control things from from the water to the table. So you guys also you also run a company called Cape Seafood, which is a processing plant. Can you tell us a little bit about how that got started and what you guys do there and what was the impetus for that business? Sure. So um, Cape Seafood is a state-of-the-art lobster and crab production facility. So we buy live lobster, live crab directly from fishermen. Um, so we can trace it back to the source, bring it into our wholly owned, wholly managed seafood company, Cape Seafood, and there we cook it. Um, and ship it directly to the restaurants. So it's um, just to throw some some jargon out there. Um, it's the only SQF level three and MSC certified facility um, of it uh, in the lobster business. Period. SQF is a is a measure of, of uh, food quality, mm-hmm. food quality program, um, and MSC is a is a is a, is a program that. Uh, requires you to to um, be able to trace your product um, so that you can prove that you're sourcing from sustainable resources. So um, really what Cape Seafood enables us to do is control quality uh, throughout our um, chain of custody. So from, from fishermen um, to our guests or from, from uh, um, trap to... Uh, trapped plate we're we're in control of the product now we haven't necessarily um uh got to the scale where that type of strategy um uh is that type of vertical integration strategy has helped with 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 costs but what it does enable us to do is is be authentic to to our story and enables us to offer most importantly enables us to offer um, the best quality to our guests because there is no middleman involved where something is sitting in a tank or on a shelf and waiting for um, waiting for uh, a buyer to meet with a seller and and for a transaction to happen we know exactly where that product is going the minute it comes out of the water um, so for us uh, that's been imperative for us to continue to grow the brand 
um, and maintain quality. It's about we've got about 125 high quality main jobs that are running that are working and, and running that facility each area, and um, uh, it's something. It's a business that my father had the, the very first um, lobster processing license in the state of Maine. Actually, the the second lobster processing license in the state of Maine too. That one was actually out on Vinyl Haven, um, where you uh, where you went fishing. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, um, a lot of learned family lessons um, there, and it's just a business that me and my brother and partners um, are very proud to to operate. It's a tough business. Right. Um, so I want to uh, clarify. So you you did what you just said is that this type of vertical integration has not yet isn't the compelling argument like today isn't the economic imperative it's the ability to sustain the like uh to to look at the traceability and to control the quality yeah you know hopefully we expect to to someday you know to turn the corner where all of the investment that it takes to get one of these facilities open and running um works works to our benefit but uh, but we just we we haven't quite gotten there with with scale, um, but but we will. And and for us, uh, you know, bottom line profitability is it's certainly important. Of course, in running a business. Yeah. But um, but it hasn't been our our motivation from day one. So we've had the good fortune of 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 really great guests and strong sales that have enabled us to continually reinvest in this business and grow. Um, and we've had. Really, as Eric said earlier, we've got great. Uh, he needs a good team to run his boat. We've got a great team to run run our business, and, um, and we've just been able to make the pie a little bit bigger and uh, each and every year. And that's and that's uh, that strategy's worked for us. So, kind of under this, um, under the kind of like strategy of uh, growing your business and and. Um, you know, having essentially a, a say and or a hand in all of the steps along the way. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Tenants Harbor Fishermen's Co-op that was launched uh, earlier this year? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, actually, uh, I first met, the, the wharf is owned by four brothers. And uh, one of the brothers is a, is a guy named Peter Miller. And I met Peter because uh, we both served on the Board of Directors of the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative, which was a new initiative uh, that the state um, funded to go out and promote lobster, um, just like any other commodity, whether it's blueberries or red apples, um, has a has a marketing campaign behind it. We wanted to do the same thing for the state of Maine. So, um, so Peter and I were on the the founding board for uh, for that organization, and. Um, Peter's in a very, uh, very competitive part of the state. They've got they catch a lot of lobsters in that area, really high quality lobsters, and and there's a lot of big buyers um, with deep pockets uh, that buy um, on the wharfs all around him. So, can I Luke, can I interrupt you real quick? Can you yeah. uh, can you explain to me exactly what a wharf is? What that means? Yeah. So. Um, so, like, Eric can can do this justice too, but effectively, like, a wharf is 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 essentially like, um, I mean, it's the it's it's the warehouse that every fisherman needs. Like, 
you need to have some place to get your fuel. You need to have a place to get your bait. Um, you need to have a place to sell your lobsters. So that that, that wharf um, serves as as basically as uh, the warehouse or the service station for for the vessels, so that they have the opportunity to um, to do all of the to get all of the resources that they need to to manage their boat and to go out and effectively work each and every day. Got it. Okay, cool. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was like, I'm like, I want to make sure I understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, no, it's, in, in, this stuff's like second nature to us. So please feel free to do that at any point in time. Um, so they, so they, they just sort of found themselves in a position where, um, it was difficult for them to run their own, their own wharf. Um, because it was it was hard to offer the same services and the same value to the fishermen that these big corporations were offering. So, um, so they um, they and one of their advisors approached me in the spring about um, about about buying the wharf, and um, and neither had the expertise to run a wharf nor the the the, the money to to buy the wharf. Um, so I, I told them that I, I just didn't see an opportunity for where we could where we could buy the wharf and, and ultimately be a great partner for them. So um, we then went back to the drawing board to figure out how we could put something in place so that the family didn't have to sell the have to sell the wharf. Mm-hmm. And we came up with the idea of a of a co- of a of a, a cooperative, um, which is um, something that is very. Um, there's cooperatives all up and down the state, but they run a little different to, differently than this one. Um, the idea behind a cooperative is that ordinarily, if um, Eric is selling his lobsters to the wharf for four dollars a pound, that wharf is going to go around and turn and sell it to the market or the processor for four fifty. There's right. typically like a fifty cent spread in there, um, and co- co-ops typically. Um, they try and run their wharf as efficiently as possible so that at the end of the year, any profit that's left over can get distributed pro rata based off of landings back to the co-op members. So good model for the fishermen in most cases, so long as they they keep their overhead down and have enough landings to, to justify um, enough landings to justify their, uh, their, their, Overhead expense, um, but what we did is we came up with a with an even more diversified opportunity for these fishermen, where uh, they were working directly with a processor and restaurant group, so they didn't need as much overhead to to sit there and negotiate price each and every day. We've got a, um, a simple way and confidential way to 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 deal with price, um, so that they are getting a. A, a very fair price for their lobster, and then beyond that, there was a restaurant that was on um, that wharf that was open for close to 30 years that had just shut down a couple of years before. So um, the Luke's Lobster Restaurant Group reopened to that restaurant, um, and 50% of the net profits from that restaurant group from that restaurant go back to the co-op. So there was another earning potential there. And then there's other benefits for the for the co-op to be part of a larger um, a larger business like Cape Seafood and Luke's Lobster, where we help manage their bait needs 
um, so that they don't have crazy bait fluctuations throughout the year. Um, and and uh, um, and they really help them manage the, the wharf so that their overhead's low so that dividend can be as, as high as possible. So it, it ended up being a better business plan for these guys. And right. we've got aspirations down the road to create branded products under under their flag and um and we'll help uh uh and we'll then contribute percentages of sales back to them for that so there's that whole component so can you give me a sense of the you know you mentioned you know like these individual wharfs uh or fishermen having to compete which with much kind of like larger uh, businesses or organizations that um, also run wharfs that also are buying in lots of lobster. You know, it sound, 5 million pounds of lobster sounds like a lot of lobster to me, but how how big is Luke's, like, in comparison to uh, other businesses that are, are kind of focused on the lobster industry? Are you guys small, medium, large? Like, what's the what's the scale there? Yeah, it's, I would say small. Um Especially in the last like ten years, there's been a fair amount of consolidation mm-hmm. um, in the lobster industry, and a lot of bigger organizations, um, whether it's companies like uh, East Coast or Chicken of the Sea or Mazetta, who have many different product lines, mm-hmm. um, fish, scallops, um, what name you that have that have also gotten into the lobster business. So you've got these. Uh, very large organizations that um, that uh, lobster is just it's it's a very meaningful but it's a part of their program and then you've got other lobster businesses that um, will produce you know five times what we do in a year um, uh, Maine has always been a very very small player in the lobster business compared to most of the Canadian production facilities so um, so we're definitely sort of a, a pimple on a, on the elephant's um, butt when it comes to the size of. Uh, uh, thank the, you for that visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, man, I have like a ton more kind of like logistics and operational and kind of big picture questions, but um, I think we're going to have to save those for another episode because, Eric, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of. Um, seasonality and um and kind of what 2016 has looked like you know out on the water kind of what you're seeing um this year in comparison to years past you know i i got the impression that the season started a little earlier than normal this year and i'm wondering um you know kind of what you can share with us as far as how the season has looked uh from your perspective so far this year well first off uh this year there has been a increase in the price of bait that we use to bait our traps. So that's kind of been um, a little difficult for some to deal with. We buy bait by the 55-gallon drum. Uh, normal bait last year was around 125 to 150. This year it's uh, probably 150 to $200 range. So that has gone up uh, significantly. Um, There was a lot of talk earlier on in the year because we had somewhat of a mild winter and, uh, you know, some some sunnier days in the spring, and everyone got excited that it was going to be a repeat of 
2012 where we had shedders very early, uh, kind of caused a little bit of a collapse in the in the live market for our boat price. Um, so this year it's 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 been different. You know, you always have to be able to react um, to what's going on in the industry and. It's been a good year. It's been a little bit slower than normal. Um, we're kind of waiting for that fall run mm-hmm. to really hit off and, and kind of carry us through the winter. Um, being an offshore guy, this is kind of like our bread and butter is coming up here. What does uh, offshore mean? Uh, we have an imaginary line that follows the main coast. Um, if you look on a chart, it's three nautical mile line, and it goes whole coast of Maine. So in order to get beyond that into federal waters, um, you need an Area 1 permit. So that allows you to go fish offshore um, in federal waters, where, in my opinion, the lobsters are more plentiful. And it allows you to um, extend your season um, through the winter and spring months. Got it. Got it. So, so you're kind of coming into a, 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 the time of year that's going to be a little bit make or break, and that is really dependent on, you know, you put the traps out and you, you kind of get what you get. I mean, how obviously there's, you know, kind of a skill set and a knowledge and, and, you know, some obviously fishermen do better than others or worse than others. Like, I'm wondering, like, what is kind of the the range that, like, of impact that you can have that's not related to just kind of what's there. So if like I'm a great lobster fisherman and can I get 10% more than the guy, the next guy or woman over 20% more, like how does that, how does that kind of like know how skill set kind of come to bear um, in, in what you're able to kind of pull out of the water? Well, I think it all comes down to drive and how much you want to go and, and, how much effort you want to put in. Yeah, you know, I, like anything, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I eat, sleep, and breathe this business. You know, all I want to do every year is catch more than the next guy. You know, I, I, I'd i like to make a name for myself as someone who catches a lot of lobsters, so I put a lot of effort into that. And I'm constantly thinking of new ways to outdo the next guy. You know, you learn from a lot of these guys around the harbor and, and and you see what works and you see what doesn't. And uh, I've always been very observant. And so I think that's kind of the key to my drive is, is to keep pushing forward. I'm, you know, I was an athlete growing up. I just, it's a competitive business and it, it's, it's really what drives me to keep going. Right. Right. That is awesome. Guys, this has been so fascinating. Um, what a great update. Luke, Eric, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, um, and in the middle of your busy season, to kind of give us a little bit of an update and an insight into the Maine lobster industry. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. You'll have to, uh, you'll have to come up to Maine one of these beautiful summer days and, uh, come out on the wild duck go for a haul oh man i you know i it's, it's funny because i had such a good time i went up in 20 oh my gosh i guess it's about six years ago i had such a like magical week that i'm almost afraid to go back because like my memory is so perfect and then i'm like 
<laughs> um, so it's, it's the romance of the the summer, the island, the lobster. Yeah, you know, I had like the know, lobster being, and like being a little in that paradise. Yep, swimming in the quarry, like a little love affair. You know, it was like everything was just like out of ten. You know, so I'm like. Oh man, can I like hit that note again? I don't know, but oh, you know, I'm ready. I'm go. ready. <laughs> um, Anything's possible in the wild, Doc. Yeah, right. That's right. right. <laughs> so, um, uh, I know if folks want to find out more about kind of Luke's lobster and the work they can do, just you know, check out their website. It's uh, www.lukeslobster.com dot com um lots of information there um with regards to a lot of the topics we covered today links to um cape seafood if you want to hear more about that um and they are hiring across the country really uh lots of different types of positions so if you got inspired by what you heard today and want to get involved and are looking for a job there's some stuff out there for you too Guys, thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break to hear a little bit from our sponsor, and then we will um, finish up the show as we do with our Escape Maker segment. So hang tight. We will be right back. And music in this break is by Shadowbox. This one's called Let's Not. We'll be right back. to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Or come by Escapemaker's Blue Tent and Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. Have you listened to On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio? Escapemaker has teamed up with Heritage Radio to design a vacation package that provides a first-hand experience of the local flavors from some of New York's best craft beverage producers. Listen in and book your trip at escapemaker.com slash heritageradio. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. Get out of the city and explore, while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to EscapeMaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Well, welcome back. Uh, you, of course, are tuned in to the Escape Maker segment of the Farm Report. And today we are taking a little trip over to the Finger Lakes. We are on the line with the founder of Heron Hill Winery, John Ingle. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So you guys are located about four and a half hours from the city, um, kind of known for your production of cool climate Rieslings. Um, but you've been making wine for quite some time. You know, I, so, so the story I've heard is that you and your wife, Joe, planted your first vines back in 1972. 
Um, what what prompted the entry into wine? I mean, you're not a scion of a winemaking family, so where did that idea come from? Well, I uh, graduated from the University of Denver, and I was uh, certified to teach school, and I did teach school for a year. And uh, while it was very rewarding, and I have a ton of respect for teachers, and uh, uh, wish they were paid like basketball players, they deserve to be, but... Uh, I uh, realized that if I was going to work as hard as you have to work to be a good teacher for the amount of money that you make doing it, that that opened a number of other options. And I had uh, gotten an interest in uh, organic farming and, and organic living, and that was really where I felt my passion was. And my wife and I drove around uh, the Northwest and then ended up back here in the Finger Lakes looking for a piece of land. And we uh, really didn't plan on being grape growers or vineyardists or winemakers or anything. We just wanted to be, uh, live an organic life and be close to the land. And we ended up working uh, at a vineyard here nearby and picking grapes during the harvest and being outdoors on a sunny, crisp autumn day, picking grapes and working with a group of people, about 15 or 20 people picking the grapes, and it just something about it seemed very uh, alluring and romantic and, and uh, exciting to me, and I, I just sort of looked at my wife and said, this is it, this is what I want to do and what we're going to do, and uh, we didn't really know dirt from soil at that point, we had no training <laughs> at all in growing grapes or uh, making wine or any of that, but we... Uh, sort of took a leap of faith and uh, planted uh, 12 acres of grapes in 72, as you mentioned, and uh, the rest is history. Well, so I want to understand a little bit the kind of winemaking climate in the early 70s into the early 80s in the in the U.S. Um, when, you know, folks were, when you were getting started and you were, you know, tasting other wines or thinking about varietals, what was kind of the the vibe like? What was the the um, were people like? Oh yeah, that's like an idea you're building on a long tradition, or were they like that's a little crazy, or oh we only do this kind of thing here in the Finger Lakes, and like that if you want to do that other thing you have to get out to Oregon or California. I mean, what was the scene like at the beginning? Well, to give you an idea, when we started uh, our vineyard in '72, there were uh, 12 wineries in, in New York State. Now there's almost 400. And Whoa. literally every state in the country makes wine now. In those days, it was a, a much smaller scope. Uh, most of the wine and uh, produce was was produced by large wineries. There were very few smaller family-type wineries like there are now, just like in the craft brewery business. A lot of the individuals are getting in and trying to compete with Budweiser and uh, you know Millers and all those guys. And we were trying to compete with Gallo and some of the other guys, and obviously we're not going to overpower them, so we had to focus on quality and, uh, you know, the boutique effect. And uh, we, uh, you know, have, have come a long way, and, and back in those days, uh, you were really kind of on your own. I mean, there was, it was possible to get information, you know, from the, the state uh, ag service on, on certain topics and stuff, but they... They weren't really on the uh, cutting edge. We wanted we wanted to plant uh, European varieties, which are known as vinifera, 
uh, varieties versus the Labrusca, which are the Concords and the Niagara's and the, the Delaware's that are native to the uh, U.S. And so we were we were doing something different that we were somewhat discouraged to try and do that. They said, "Well, you know, you, you're, you're really sticking your neck out, and you probably should think about that." And we were determined that if we were going to have a vineyard, it was going to be Chardonnay and Riesling grapes. So we, uh, you know, we were sort of uh, on our own with a lot of that. And, and uh, you know, in those days, there wasn't didn't seem to be as much communication and cooperation between. Uh, growers and wineries and everybody you sort of did your own thing and and tried to be resilient and and uh, just basically survive we had some horrendous winters back in the 70s and uh, we had a lot of uh, winter kill and, and a lot of difficult vintages and now with climate change etc things have become more conducive to being able to grow uh, some of these European varieties so a lot more people are, are having a, a crack at it and uh, we're actually having some pretty exciting results with uh, some of the red wines, uh, like Cabernet Sauvignon and, and Merlot, and the Cabernet Franc is a, another good one up here in the Finger Lakes, and, and even Pinot Noir, when Mother Nature cooperates, uh, can make some <laughs> exciting wines. But uh, there's, there's a lot more interaction and communication, and very uh, uplifting now to see the young pe- people working together and tasting each other's wines and helping each other improve and just in the last you know 15 20 years there's been a huge huge uh, leap of uh, uh, participation and, and working together so that's really bodes well for the, the the near future in my mind yeah I'll bet well one of the other things I love from your website is you were talking about in your in your vineyards there are uh, Boot prints, not uh, not wheel prints, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your decision around like where to use um, different tools or, or hand labor, and, and how you think that kind of flows through to the end product. Well, the reality of the situation, Aaron, is that uh, we really wanted to create a lifestyle as much as we wanted to create a uh, uh, source of uh, living. Uh, so we we uh, started out with the belief that uh, an organic life is is the way to go, and we've been living organically for 45 years. We grow all our own food organically. Uh, we make cider and we make syrup and we make uh, all kinds of products. We dry fruit and we do hunting and fishing and, and we wanted to try and you know provide for ourselves and not necessarily be totally isolated from the, the food chain, but be, be in control of our destiny. And uh, I think we've, we've stuck to that all, all these years, and we've tried to be as organic as possible. Uh, being certified organic is a, is a big challenge, and I certainly respect the people that are able to fulfill that. But uh, for us up here in the Finger Lakes, where oftentimes we'll have rainy years like last year and in the past we've had a lot of rainy autumns which is the harvest and you know a whole year's work goes towards that one month of of harvesting and if you get a hurricane coming up from the coast or from the south and it rains for a week or whatever it can destroy your whole crop and you have no crop no income no wine no grapes no nothing and that can that can be pretty devastating so we we do uh, do use fungicides to prevent the uh, 
assorted mildews and rots that, mm-hmm. that can uh, attack grapes in a wet year. Knock on wood, this has been a hot, dry year, which the grapes love. And if we can get through the next month or six weeks without a lot of rain, it's going to be an excellent uh, vintage for us. But uh, we don't use chemical fertilizers. We only use organic fertilizers. We don't use pesticides. We, we do it all by hand and machine. Wow. So, you know, it's like, yeah, keeping tools in your toolbox because things change not just day to day and week to week, but but year to year. And I think one of the other areas that it seems like you guys have played a leadership role in is in this kind of agritourism space where one, you're growing and producing a product, but two, you're creating, um, you know, a meeting place, an activity place for the community. I know you guys host Weddings, and you're in the midst of like a really beautiful location. Um, was it always? It seems like it was. Was it always just kind of like your ethos to want to bring people in and, and share that kind of experience that you know you and your wife Joe were were trying to make happen for yourselves personally? Well, you know, I, we were fortunate enough to be able to travel when we were younger and used to. Uh, do a little a little test when we met people and they'd say well where are you from and we'd say well we're from the finger lakes and in the old days being back in the 60s and the 70s uh people would look at us like where's that you know and uh over the years gradually it's changed to oh yeah i've heard of that and i hear it's really beautiful and i say yep you're right and that's true and there was a long time when we you know we're happy to have the place to ourselves and and live here on the <laughs> arm in the country and have peace and and quiet and uh you know gradually just like everywhere uh things have been developed and progress has uh come and uh you know we still have our farm and our and our piece of land that we cherish and work but uh we're slowly uh being surrounded by uh development and uh you know that's that's great and we don't mind sharing the beauty here and we know that we have a really fantastic place to live and uh you know it's cold here in the winter but if you like uh snow or uh skating and and uh uh skiing and uh you know cross-country skiing we love and there's just so much to do in the winter and of course the summers are beautiful we have these beautiful clean water lakes which are really precious uh we have a 400 foot deep lake and it's full of fish and it's great for boating and water skiing i just had my grandchildren up a couple weeks ago and they Two or three of them learned to water ski, and they were very excited about that. And now all they want to talk about is when can we come back and go water skiing, which, of course, puts a smile on my face and my wife. So uh, we're very, very blessed to live here. And, uh, you know, as I say, we've had a chance to travel, and we love it here as much as anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, so for folks, if they want to kind of learn more about the wine and the region and, and what you guys offer, they can find you at uh, www.heronhill.com. It's H-E-R-O-N. And John, before we let you go, one of the things I would love to touch on, you know, because you mentioned um, the development and, and the, the kind of growth of the space around you, what is it that you think that, you know, wine producers, uh, you know, people who are are farmers, people who work and make their living in agriculture. Um, you know, why why is it important to preserve that way of life beyond the the eating and the drinking that we get to do? What else do you do for that region? What is your impact there beyond just what we're kind of putting in our mouths? 
Well, number one, uh, you know, we drink our wine every day with our family and our friends, so we're very focused on producing a, as healthful a product that we can enjoy uh, as possible. And obviously, when you have people coming, and, and this will be our 40th anniversary next year, we started in 19, the winery in 1977, and we get thousands of people, probably 50,000 people a year, come to visit our winery. Wow. We are, you know, we are a sounding board for people uh, from around the world and around the United States and, uh, and locally as well. And so we, we have an effect on their opinions and on their uh, observations of, of uh, what's going on around here. And we want to put our best foot forward and, and let them know that we are dedicated and, and uh, down to earth, as they say, and that uh, we believe in what we're doing and we're working hard to accomplish our goals, but we're also focused on the environment and preserving these beautiful lakes that we were blessed with here and, and uh, fighting the gas storage on Seneca Lake and some of the other things. We've we've had 20 wineries uh, build solar systems in the last two or three years. Cool. We all are, are uh, working together to establish uh, and continue our image of uh, stewards of the land and uh, we're very proud of the things that we're accomplishing, and we want people to uh, know more about what we're doing and, and our beliefs and our goals and our values, and we welcome their uh, their visits, and we're anxious to uh, communicate with them and educate them about, you know, what's going on with us in the Finger Lakes and the uh, the work we're all doing together as a as an industry with the uh, the wineries and the grape growers. That is awesome. Well, John, I wish that we had twice as much time to talk because I bet you have some great stories to tell. Um, so we're going to have to have you back. But unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure, Aaron, and uh, I'll be anxious to hear hear, hear the uh the blurb when you uh, put it on the air. <laughs> we will definitely uh, send you a copy of that. Folks, get out there. Um, check out some of the Rieslings, um, some of the ice wines. You can put together uh, your own itinerary. Um, check out our friends at escapemaker.com for more on how to do that. Um, of course, this brings us to the end of another episode of The Farm Report. Thank you so much for listening. If you uh, like what you hear, please subscribe. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. would love to hear from you. You can leave a review in either of those spaces. You can find me on uh, Twitter or Instagram. I'm Aaron underscore Fairbanks. And, of course, we are a member-supported nonprofit radio station. So if you like what you hear, please visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that beating heart and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.